How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Is that the right word? Penultimate. Penultimate? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that works. That's right. That's the next to last, right? I was gonna say this isn't last though, right? I don't know. <laughs> so I was like, I don't no. know. This we still got like Hollow Man, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Penultimate right. is second last. Oh, see. Second to last. Yeah, I was right. I know my, I know word. I know big fancy words. Pit ultimate. That's this. This is, <laughs> this is, I'm just using a normal big pit. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. People have been canceled uh, for less. I almost said stupid. Gary, oh, Gary turns 40 and all of a sudden he's making dad jokes. I'm in. Wait a minute. All of a sudden? Well, he's, <laughs> tur- he's turned into Gary Sr. here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, it's slowly, fair. slowly just morphing into my father. Oh, well. <laughs> welcome to. Hello. Wait. Well, hello. And welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast that explores the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I'm one of your hosts, Justin Bishop. I'm co-host Gary Horn. Joining us today Just is happy Mr. To be here. <laughs> Joining us today is uh, the, the the voice you hear cackling in the background is Mr. Todd A. Davis. Uh, welcome back to the show, Todd. Hey, Good to guys. As a special guest, Thanks Gary. For having me. <laughs> uh, Gary, happy birthday! Yay! Why are you talking to yourself? Oh yeah. Well, I'm actually. Oh, do you think we fooled anyone with that? I don't. I don't um, think so. Uh, no, I, actually, that joke, by the way, I listen back. If you go back in the Psychotronic archives, that was the initial joke at the beginning of our Starship Troopers episode on there. So I was keeping it consistent. I For some reason, you. I started that episode saying I'm just a bishop. Oh, did you? Oh, nice. <laughs> and then I said, oh. I don't like movies that aren't smart. <laughs> <laughs> I do like movies that aren't smart. I think you said that too. That's <laughs> well, true. <laughs> anyway, all right. Oh. You were also recovering from a, a sickness. You had a, you said you were full of mucus. So are you feeling uh, better now? A year and a half later, yeah, I'm good. I'm full. I'm full of blood. <laughs> two years later, that's I was about to say. Years. I think it was like February 2018 was that episode. Okay, so three, oh. two and a half years ago. Yeah, I'm. I'm I've recovered. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for your concern. But what if that was like the original COVID case, man? Uh-huh. Could have been. Sorry about it. Sorry, <laughs> my bad. Anyway, guys, this is week uh week uh shit. What week is this? Week six of our uh of our Paul Verhoeven series, uh the sex and violence, the films of Paul Verhoeven. Uh as as we were discussing in the uh, intro to the show. This is the penultimate episode of this series. We're gonna end things next week, but we got a big one this week. I'd say uh, I'd say one of what every week. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> oh God! Uh, if you really did, you don't have to say it. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, I don't know how to recover from that and go on to the next. You guys see the, I don't you, know how to segue. You see everybody's butts in this movie. I yeah, seen them. yeah. I, uh, 
Lots of butts. There's a lot of butts. butts. I mean, that's there's a lot of butts in Paul Verhoeven's movies in general. I mean, I think they all have butts in them, right? Does Total Recall have butts? There's, I mean, there's three boobs. I can't remember if you see Arnold's butt in that one. I was about to say, generally in Arnold movies, you see his butt at some point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's because it's so well sculpted. He wants to show I, it. I would that's show true. It as well. <laughs> it's so smooth and sculpted. It is mm-hmm. hairless like a baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Arnold's baby. <laughs> New band name, I called it Arnold. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, after the critical and commercial beating that Showgirls received, uh, it probably comes as no surprise that for his next project, Paul Verhoeven returned to the tried and true world of science fiction, the genre, of course, that had given him two of his biggest hits, uh, Robocop and Total Recall. And, you know, the film that he followed Showgirls up with, it would, upon release, become, I guess, to no one's surprise at this point, uh, kind of controversial and was very misunderstood at the time of its release. But nearly a quarter of a century later, it has become one of the most popular and I would say one of the most beloved films of Verhoeven's career. And we are talking, of course, about Starship Troopers. In every age, there is a cause worth fighting for. But in the future, the greatest threat to our survival will not be man at all. Hey, Jason, what's going on? It's war! We're going to war! Now, the youth of tomorrow must travel across the stars to defend our world. We are a generation commanded by fate to defend humankind. Everyone fights, no one quits. We are going in with first wave. You smash the entire But they will face an enemy more devastating than any ever imagined. The bugs laid a trap for us, didn't they? Prepare for battle and journey to the front lines of the next frontier. Kill them all! Starship Troopers. I thought we were watching Super Troopers, so my, uh, notes, are gonna, <laughs> my, my notes are gonna be funny, meow. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you thought uh, Farva was a Verhoeven creation. I did, I did. yeah. Wow, he just felt wow. he felt like he'd fit right in and like on Mars. And <laughs> this movie's not even set on Mars. Well, I know. I'm just saying he could have. You know. All right, meow. <laughs> Let's move on. (laughs) All right. So Starship Troopers, based on a novel of the same name by a legendary science fiction author named Robert Heinlein. Uh, So Heinlein's novel, when it came out, it was also very controversial when it was released. Uh, This was in 1959. So Heinlein, he had served in the military. He was in the Navy uh, back in the 1930s. And his military service greatly influenced his writings and his political leanings. Uh, his writings were often kind of at odds with some of his other sci-fi contemporaries, guys like Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, who whose stuff tended to be there's a there's a lot of like anti-communism themes, things like that, and a lot of that old sci-fi. Not that Heinlein stuff is necessarily pro-communism, but it did, definitely leaned in a very different direction than a lot of the other sci-fi writers of the time. And those three guys, by the way, are considered like the big three of sci-fi. Asimov, Clark, and Heinlein, yes. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. 
so sometime around 1958 or so, he began work on Starship Troopers, at least uh, partially inspired by his anger at President Eisenhower's decision to suspend nuclear tests. So uh, Eisenhower decided to s- suspend nuclear testing. At the same time, the Soviets were kind of increasing their own testing, and he was pissed off about this. So he and his wife, Virginia, they created the Patrick Henry League. Uh, it was inspired, the name of that was inspired by Heinlein's essay, uh, Who Are the Heirs of Patrick Henry, which was written to defend continued above-ground nuclear testing by the U.S. Uh, the article begins with a, a pretty famous quote by Patrick Henry that says, Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. We all know the quote, right? Uh, Mm. You guys know who Patrick Henry is, or at least somewhat. He's founding father, signed the Declaration of Independence, all that. Anyway, so he's looking at this quote, and this is, man, I read that quote, and I'm like, there's there's definitely some people right now who have that shit tattooed on their back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) And aren't wearing a mask. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So... Uh, But, you know, Robert Heinlein, he was very strong in his political views. And within a matter of weeks, you know, this idea comes to his head within a matter of weeks, he had written Starship Troopers in full as kind of a way to clarify his military and political views. He was not hiding like what he was trying to say with this book. Yes, it, it was a metaphor, but he wasn't being secretive about it. Uh, you know, it, it, the dedication in the book reads, to drill sergeants everywhere who have labored to make men out of boys. So that's the first thing you read when you open the book. Wow. Yeah. And, but the book was very popular when it came out. It, it won the Hugo award for best novel, uh, but it has been accused uh, even not long after release was accused of being highly militaristic pro-war and pro-fascist. So screenwriter Ed Newmeyer, uh, who we know from our RoboCop series, you know, he, he worked, he was the guy who co-wrote that and was the guy who brought a lot of the satirical elements to that script. He had been a fan of Heinlein's novel since childhood. Uh, Verhoeven, on the other hand, had never read it. So when the book was brought to him by Ed Newmeyer, who Ed, Ed Newmeyer had always wanted to adapt this book. And he had, he had been working on another story that was sort of similar, uh, then just decided, hey, why don't we check and see who owns the rights to Starship Troopers? Turns out nobody owned the rights to Starship Troopers uh, to make a movie out of it. So they just bought, they bought it. Him and John Davidson, the, the producer, bought it and brought it to Paul Verhoeven. Paul Verhoeven starts to read the book and he found, he found that the book made him, quote, bored and depressed. I stopped after two chapters because it was so boring. It's really quite a bad book. I asked Ed Newmeyer to tell me the story because I couldn't read the thing. It's a very right-wing book. So we know Ed Newmeyer, as evidenced in his work on on RoboCop, is a a decidedly not right-wing kind of guy. So he, uh, (laughs) he went about adapting Starship Troopers, and when he did so, he decided to kind of subvert the themes of the book instead of instead kind of writing the film as a satire that pokes fun at militarism and fascism. So he's taking all of the themes of the book and he's not like taking them out. He's sort of amplifying them to the point of ridiculousness. He quotes, the nail on the head. Yeah. <laughs> he quotes at some point was saying that he, he was around a bunch of his friends and stuff that thought that RoboCop was fascist. And so he was like, so for this one, we were just like, fuck it, let's go all in. Let's be yeah. real fascist. Yeah, I mean, and RoboCop was also 
a satire of, of some of the same elements, just not quite to the extreme of, of this movie. Yeah. And to be fair to the book, um, I've read it a few places, like as it's reviewed now, uh, a lot of people think he was that Heinlein was being way more nuanced than he got credit for at the time that the character of Rico uh, or whatever. I think, I think that's the name stayed the same in the book is a, is a little bit more, there's more, they say it's not too in depth because the book's actually intended. It's just like, it's one of his last uh, of his juvenile series. I think is what they called it. It was just like met for younger readers. And so, so it doesn't get like too complex, but also he was that, there are a lot of people say now that he also was trying to do his own form of maybe not satire, but he wasn't just strictly praising the military so much as just describing what this society would be like if, you know, and the potentials up, up, ups and downs of it or something. I've been yeah, reading I, a few reviews of it. Yeah. And, I, and I'll preface this with saying I have not read the book. I've only read summaries of it, but I, I do think that knowing what his personal political views are, were and his reason for writing the book, I think it's pretty safe to say that he was, uh, to an extent, promoting sort of totalitarianism to to a mm. point. You know, they say he was he was at least very pro military because he had been there. And uh, but one of the reasons he's considered one of the greats, they say, like his prose, I guess, is a lot like uh, I saw several comparisons to like Hemingway, and it was like from the style that they write, like and they're both, I think, ex-military, and so they have yeah. like certain thought processes that are saying maybe going in different directions. But he definitely was a guy from everything I read that you know was like military whips you into shape, it gets right. you to be a better person, and yeah. you know all of that stuff. So the shoot for Starship Troopers was pretty uneventful, which seems to be kind of a theme with these Verhoeven movies we've talked about so far. We're not talking about any any issues on these movies like we have on some other films in the past where like, you know, the set burns down or, you know, right. <laughs> stuntman <laughs> dies, you know. Yeah. Uh, but aside from some kind of squabbles with actors and crew, there haven't been any major issues on really any of the shoots on Verhoeven's films. It's not until afterwards when it comes time to try to get them past the ratings board that the real drama seems to start on all of these movies. Mm. Yeah, the, the biggest thing I could see on this one was, I, I mean, the, where they were filming a lot of the time, uh, was it Arizona, I think? Uh, Wyoming. Wyoming. Uh, that in that desert area, it was like super, super hot. And yeah. they were struggling with the budget. Because of the book, one of the big parts of it is like these soldiers wear these like armored suits like uh, yeah. almost like master chief from like halo style oh they're even something. bigger they're almost like um mech suits yeah they're kind of like mech suits but yeah there's not... there are mech suits in it which is apparently like what you know we're like alien and stuff like or aliens gets the idea from or like you know that's been a trope that passed down yeah they, they took those out not only for budgetary reasons though but because they kind of thought they would look a little silly on screen because these suits uh, allowed in the novel allow the soldiers to kind of like jump like great distances so they're like it's going to look kind of goofy if you've just got like a big battle scene and dudes are bouncing around in the background like yeah. hoppers, you know <laughs> like it might work in a novel but on screen it might look a little silly yeah <laughs> yeah and they and you know 
the, the soldiers, even in the scenes you see them in, in the desert aren't covered up all the way, like everywhere. Yeah. Cause it was like, they said it would get to like with the suit and stuff, everything on oh, their temperatures would get to like 124 degrees or something. Oh, insane. Geez. Like Jake Busey got a uh, heat stroke at one point. I believe and, like, it, man. Production That's... got held up. That's freaking, I can't imagine. I mean, it's, it's like in, it's probably in the nineties here today. I yeah. walked out, I would walk outside for less than 10 minutes to take my dogs out earlier and came back drenched in sweat. And I was like, this is miserable yeah. Staying in the air conditioning for the rest of the day. Yeah. I can't imagine 124 degrees. So of the film's hundred million dollar budget, about 40 million of that would be devoted solely to the film's special effects, which in a first for Verhoeven would actually be a mixture of practical and CGI. Cause he hasn't used really any CGI in his career at this point. The man overseeing those effects was Phil Tippett. We got, you, we've talked about Phil Tippett on the show before. Of course he had provided the iconic ed 209 for RoboCop. He also not long before the couple years before this uh, was uh, the dinosaur supervisor on Jurassic park. Nice. He was actually going to do the dinosaurs stop motion before they decided to go CG with them. But uh, he's a he's a legend. I mean, he is an absolute legend in the in the effects field. Still is. Two hundred of the film's six hundred FX shots would contain computer generated bugs. Now compare that to Jurassic Park, which had less than fifteen CGI dinosaur shots. Wow. This is a massive undertaking. At the time, Starship Troopers was one of the widest uses of computer generated imagery in a film so far, if not the widest. Period. This was like a, an enormous effects production. Yeah. I mean, when you've got, I mean, <laughs> it's, you can't just have one or two running around. It's, they send huge battalions of, yeah, thousands of soldiers. Yeah. Not to mention, so, I mean, and it, you have, your enemy has to be greater than you. So, yeah. One of the yeah. first times I remember hearing about that, like, thing from Lord of the Rings. Well, it was from Lord of the Rings where, like, the armies are, like, really, like, 20 guys are running or something and they just like copy them over and yeah. over or like yep. CGI some people in there, but that's done here. Yeah. Like, well, with, yeah, uh, but on, see on Lord of the Rings, a few years later, Weta created this technology where essentially it, it created like an, an AI where oh, it would yeah. generate these, these soldiers and you could program, you know, they have certain limitations and things like that, but it's essentially creating artificial intelligence in, in its, animation so you don't have to you don't have to animate or they they didn't have to like animate every single soldier every single orc or whatever that doesn't exist on this movie every single bug you see on screen somebody's having to animate that's that's a pain in the ass so one of the the first decisions that Verhoeven made was that the bugs would be biologically realistic rather than the anthropomorphic bugs of the novel see in, in Heinlein's novel the bugs they stood upright they were like humanoid bugs they they kind of they they stood upright they wore uniforms they fired weapons uh but Verhoeven didn't like the idea of having like a cockroach holding a ray gun in a in a uniform he wanted these to look like creatures like (laughs) monsters this was before men in black yeah yeah so this i don't think this is before men in black is it i don't know 97 wait a minute it is men in black pretty damn close yeah if it's uh Men in Black was 97 also. So the same year, somebody made the decision that a cockroach could hold a ray gun. <laughs> it's a little bit different uh, <laughs> type of movie anyway. See, it's uh, interesting so- to see Hollywood had this this like head-to-head battle, though. Like yeah, just yeah. real important political decisions. <laughs> <laughs> so Verhoeven asked effects designer Craig Hayes to make bugs that were convincing as actual insects 
but also he wanted them to look scary and threatening and he wanted them to have bodies that doubled as weapons. So by, by the way, a little side note, we have actually discussed Craig Hayes before. I was like, who is this guy? I started looking into him. He was actually the, the same guy who designed the full-scale model of Ed 209 for Phil Tippett on Robocop. He worked for Phil Tippett. So he, he designed the full-scale model that you see when it's mm. not being animated, you know? Yeah. We talked about, although in our Robocop episode, we talked about him and him doing that, but we referred to him as Craig Davies because that's actually the name that he's credited as in Robocop. But for later movies, he's credited as Craig Hayes. I don't I don't know why he would be under a different name. I'm sure there's a story there. But anyway, it's the same guy. Fortunately for, for Phil Tippett and, and everyone involved in the effects, he, he no longer had to use traditional stop-motion animation uh, to animate little models of, of the bugs. Instead, he used something called a digital input device. This is super interesting. I had never heard of this before. I'm not sure if it's been used in other movies or not, but it's, it's a really interesting uh, way of doing this. So with this device... He would actually still use stop motion. He would have his stop motion animators move the limbs on scale models of the insects, just like you would if you're doing like a, a traditional stop motion animation. But the movements were recorded by a computer, which converted them directly into the digital environment. So the result is the on-screen digital bugs are able to move with a more realistic weight and mass than had been possible with a lot of CGI prior to this. Well, that's cool because you because I mean if you're and then if you're also can replicate that you get consistency across the board. Yeah, and I think it's I honestly I think the special effects in this for a movie that's almost 25 years old is yeah, not, not bad. I think it holds up pretty well. I mean, there are moments yeah. here and there where the, where the age of the effects show, but I think generally the effects of the bugs I think still look pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's and it's. uh it did kind of make, uh, make me wish I had seen this in the theaters because it. I think this would have been, you know, just a fun popcorn. It played very. The scale the of this would play very well on the big screen. Yeah, yeah. The way so, they mix things is is incredible, and I remember seeing this in a theater. And uh, I also remember this. The one thing I always remember with this movie is that being one of those movies. This and that movie, the 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 Poughkeepsie tapes. I see trailers for them, and then it's still like two years later the movie had not come out or something i swear well, the poughkeepsie I... tapes were much longer than that because i think whoever bought it went bankrupt or something uh, that thing sat on the shelf for like eight years or something crazy ooh, but yes yeah. i understand what you're saying like free guy i've been seeing free guy just came out in theaters the ryan reynolds movie i've been mm-hmm. seeing trailers for that since for two years since 2018 yeah. <laughs> and, which is kind of the case with every movie right now i think i think i'll i'll uh i don't know how long i've been seeing trailers for the new james bond movie oh god yeah that's true and and i mean i just it stuck out because obviously like whatever age i was then i was like man this is this could be fun it was like yeah fucking monster bugs stuff that's why i was into it not because i was into nazis oh good (laughs) (laughs) so since the bugs were not added in production it did present a problem for the actors on set which was how to have a life and death struggle when there's literally nothing on set for you to fight uh, so to help with this, they had flags on poles that were kind of used to be sure that the actor's eye lines were correct. And then Verhoeven himself, there's footage of this. If you watch any of the behind the scenes stuff, <laughs> Verhoeven himself would be off camera, like jumping around and screaming like he's the bug. So the actors would have something to react to. <laughs> and this is not like, I guess this is kind of common now to have movies made this way. But in 1997, that wasn't really the case. In 1997, having a 
fully CGI character or creature on screen with where the actors didn't have anything to react to that that's a new thing that the actors have to learn this is not this is not a normal thing back then it's wild it kind of you know takes you back to that acting to stage acting where you're acting to something off either off in the wings or something that's appearing above the audience where you're having to you know it's just it's just you and the lights yeah (laughs) but that's kind of cool to see that with as high highly advanced as the special effects were the acting technique actually kind of reverts back to an older style of of acting yeah it's pretty neat to see the the mesh of the two come out with this product and any way that you could get like uh actors having to run from phil Tippett chasing you with a broom uh which is apparently a thing so <laughs> That's, that just sounds like a fun time yes so- <laughs> The realism that Verhoeven was shooting for with the bugs also translated to his design ideas for the, for the spaceships as well. So mm. for help with this, he enlisted Scott Anderson from Sony Imageworks. So Scott Anderson had just won an Oscar for his work on Babe. I don't remember any spaceships in Babe. <laughs> you haven't seen the director's cut clearly. Oh, okay. All right. There was right. a whole subplot removed from it. How do you, okay. how do you, how do you think those animals talks. can talk? Yeah. <laughs> There, there. So Verhoeven <laughs> envisioned bulky, boxy spacecraft as opposed to kind of the sleek fighters that you'd see in something like Star Wars. And his reasoning behind that was that there's no air or water resistance in space, so they don't need to be aerodynamic, which kind of makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's really easy to dismiss just how massive an undertaking the effects work was on Starship Troopers. Like we now live in a world where like every you know big Marvel movie has wall-to-wall effects and half the movie is CGI or hell. I mean, most Marvel movies are halfway animated movies. That wasn't the case in 1997. The sheer number of elements that are combined in the battle sequences alone in this film is incredible. And it it really does make it a triumph of digital compositing. So for instance, in in one scene, they had to use motion control cameras. You, You guys I, we've mentioned motion control cameras on the for, uh, on the show before, but I'm not sure we've ever discussed exactly what that is. Is that uh, kind of where like the camera records a movement so that that camera can repeat that exact movement that's so it can get different plates of, of yes, different things happening? 100% okay, cool. what it is. Okay, yeah, cool. The, uh, the camera records the movement to a computer and then it's able to exactly reproduce that exact movement nice. uh, in another setup. Yes. Cool. So they, they did that in this, they uh, used motion controlled cameras to match the movements of live actors that were filmed in front of a green screen. And then the movements of two stop motion animated spaceship miniatures as they crashed while elsewhere, you've got a full scale, fully posable hydraulically operated bug. They were, they're seamlessly intercut with computer generated bugs animated using that digital input device. All of these elements, that's like, what is it, what is it, like five different things that are having to be put together in one shot, you know, Jeez. Uh, it's, it's, it's insane. And then for another scene where you've got the airstrike on the bugs, where mm. they're being carpet bombed in a canyon, you know? Yeah. They, they had CGI insects that were matched with live action footage of real explosions to create a mile long chain of fireballs, which was the longest rolling explosion in special effects history. Wow. And it's a great shot. In it's a pretty cool shot. Because yeah. it's coming towards the camera. It's a really great shot. And these are just the scenes where like live action and CGI footage are combined. Uh, even the combining of purely digital elements was impressive. Like, you know, I said before, the that Lord of the Rings 
that technology didn't exist. That crowd technology didn't, didn't exist at the time. So for there, there's a scene where the bugs storm the fortress and Phil Tibbet spent 60 hours layering and animating the insects. There were over a thousand bugs in a single shot. And not only that, it, if you watch the behind the scenes documentary on this, Gary, did you watch any of the behind the scenes stuff on the Blu-ray? Yeah. Yeah. So they, they, they talk about this shot where the, uh, the camera's on a, on a crane and it goes up, the camera goes up and where they were filming out in the desert, it was very windy. So the camera kind of jiggles a little bit and there was no way for them to stop that. So you can actually see it in the movie, but that's the scene where all these bugs are coming over the Canyon and they're not only having to animate the bugs, but they're having to compensate for that little bit of jiggle in the camera. It was just made that much more work. And it's one of the first shots that Phil Tibbet worked on. And he's like, fuck, I hope the rest of it's not like this. Like this is going to be rough. <laughs> now the, the effects of Starship Troopers were, it's a huge undertaking. I mean, it yeah. involved half a dozen effects studios, hundreds of CG artists, animators, and compositors. Uh, that's not to mention the guys in Phil Tippett's workshop who are creating the animatronics you know yeah. like like the brain bug that we see or a lot of the close-ups of the bugs uh yeah. those are big puppets that they're creating in addition to the cgi stuff it's really an enormous undertaking yeah i you know just thinking back to the assault uh to the assault on the fortress uh after the rico and his team come in it's a dope sequence because i mean it, it's it's high energy and they're moving fast through all this stuff while simultaneously trying to fight off this horde of of bugs and it's just ugh, it's it's pretty cool you know you had i ilm involved and it was just interesting like all these different like uh uh what did they call it in the commentary they called it like the in, inbreeding or something of uh of design or something or you know like in, in special effects and stuff like that just like one of the groups that worked on it was called band from the ranch and it was actually people that used to be with Lucas, Skywalker, yeah. yeah, Skywalker Ranch, but they had gotten in trouble for uh partying, like breaking into George Lucas's <laughs> office and partying. So they started nice. their own thing. And they called it Band from the Ranch. ranch. That's yeah. great. I love that. <laughs> that I think there's some ties to the Spawn movie based on like the creation of that group. I, really? I remember the I remember the name Band from the Ranch. They would yeah, they, they talked on the Spawn commentary from 1997. They talk about partying in uh you know some of the folks that are steve williams and uh i forget the director's name uh but they were all working at at ilm and would regularly party in george's office yeah i'm looking and, at uh, their i'm actually looking at their filmography now and they uh they did they did some good stuff yeah. they got started on congo which is not great but you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> they did uh yeah they did men in black they did titanic they did yeah. the relic dante's peak Deep it's, Rising, Doctor Doolittle. You know they did, they did Twister. The uh, like the Spawn movie is what it bad. is. Huh? It's bad. It's bad. <laughs> yeah, I you know it, I know it's, it, it, it's, it's a long time. It's a slice. <laughs> it's a it's a comic book slice of the nineties. It, yes, it is you know, very much. <laughs> but the comment, but the commentary is actually very entertaining. It's yeah. really really fun. <laughs> well, I, I like to you know like the it's just interesting. There was all these people working on this thing, and, and you're, you you kind of covered it, but like just how much went into the special effects on this. But yeah, one of the coolest parts to me was even on the this is mostly ILM. I think was. When you first go to like Denise Richards side of things where it's on the station and she's learning to pilot and all that stuff as she takes the thing out. This is interesting. They use like so many miniatures and then like just CGI the right places to like 
that you can tell if you're looking for it, but otherwise it works really, really well. Like it, it, it looks, it looks really good even, even today. And it's funny. We, we've talked a lot about the effects on this so far, but we haven't really mentioned the cast yet. And that's probably because the, uh, the effects are much more impressive than the actors, but, uh, <laughs> but that's kind of on purpose. I think, I think it's on purpose. Uh, so Verhoeven initially cast actors who had kind of the bland good looks of soap opera actors. And and in fact, many of them were soap opera actors. He was also trying the whole opening sequence of this, that propaganda video is very much modeled on triumph of the will, the Nazi propaganda film by Lenny Reifenstahl. And he's very much trying to cast people who look like the people from that, that movie, which are sort of the Nazis ideal Aryan soldiers. Yeah. So he's casting people that kind of had that same look on purpose. So cast as the lead character of Johnny Rico was Casper Van Dien in his first major major film role. Uh, Van Dien's career up to this point had mostly consisted of TV appearances, including a stint on the soap opera One Life to Live and a seven-episode run on Beverly Hills 90210. Dina Meyer was cast as Dizzy Flores. Meyer, he, she'd already been in a couple movies at this point. She'd had prominent roles in uh, Johnny Mnemonic and Dragonheart. Uh, speaking of slices of the 90s, uh, <laughs> but like Van Dien, she'd gotten her start on television, which also included a 12-episode run on Beverly Hills 90210. Oh, boy, I'm sensing a pattern here. <laughs> yeah, just a bunch of beautiful people. Yeah. As for Van Dien, that jawline is unstoppable. It's, it is. I mean, he Man. was he was born to play a soldier in a movie, honestly. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Denise Richards was cast as Johnny's high school sweetheart, Carmen. Uh, Richards, she, she'd begun her career as a model, but had made her film debut in, uh, actually, her first film role is in the Lethal Weapon parody, Loaded Weapon 1, which we briefly discussed back in our Lethal Weapon episode. Uh, <laughs> but it, she'd also done, I think, Tammy and the T-Rex at this point, which wasn't exactly a high point in her career, but I would highly recommend watching it if you haven't seen it. Uh, I like that movie. And at it's this great. time, uh, Denise Richards, to me, was like the most perfect woman god had ever put together she so, is quite attractive yeah and so it makes perfect sense that yeah. she would be in this film it's like she is the ideal human woman at this time <laughs> and like her co-star co she had previously worked in television mostly in kind of single episode guest appearances on shows like like married, married with children she was on, she had on an episode of there casper van dien had also guest starred on that show uh and alongside her starship troopers co-star neil patrick harris on Doogie Howser, MD. How about uh, that? Oh, she also Doogie. did an episode of uh, Beverly Hills 90210. There you go. That's three for three. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Neil Patrick Harris was on Beverly Hills 90210. Oh. <laughs> but uh, you guys know, I'm sure everyone knows who Neil Patrick Harris is. He's, you know, he's, he's probably the most famous of the cast, at least uh, prior to this, because uh, this was, you know, this was one of his early film roles, but he had, of course, played the title character on Doogie Hauser for four years or so in the early 90s, got an Emmy. So, yeah, I, I think he was probably the most established star in the movie at mm. this point. Then rounding out the cast, we've got Jake Busey. And brother, his teeth. Brother of uh, Gary Busey, of course. He's the brother? <laughs> no, brother. I thought he was his son. No, it's his brother. I always thought uh, Jake Busey was his son. I think I, it's his brother. I Wait think it's. I think Jake is the son of Gary. Mm, I don't think I'm that's looking right. it up. I'm googling it. Wikipedia. Jake Busey's 50 years old. How could he be? Oh, he is. He Busey is, is the son of actor Gary Busey. I'll be damn. You got, <laughs> you got me. Mark it down, folks. How old is Gary Busey? 
Gary's old, man. He was old. He was old back in. You listen to me. Gary Busey started fucking at 12. (laughs) (laughs) Gary Busey Busey is in his late 70s. I guess he's older than I thought. Gary Busey right there. Yeah, look at that. Wow. How about that? Gary Busey is the only man who considers being bored the first time he got some pussy. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Jake Busey, who had uh, just prior to this, like the year before, I think, was in the Frighteners, right? Yeah. 96. That's right. Uh, Then we've also got the legendary Clancy Brown, uh, Seth Gilliam, Patrick Muldoon, who's another soap opera guy. uh, Who was also place. But most importantly, besides stealing Denise Richards here, he's also... Jeff and Saved by the Bell, the guy who steals Kelly Kapowski from yeah. Zach Morris. He's a real so. son of a bitch. He really is. <laughs> oh, man. And, of course, we had uh, Verhoeven regulars, Michael Ironside, Marshall Bell, and Dean Norris. And, Dean and Norris. They were yeah, all in Dean Total Norris. Recall. All in Total Recall. Yeah. Michael Ironside also lost limbs in Total Recall. <laughs> he did. <laughs> That's true. Paul just like Twice chopping shit off Michael, Michael Ironside. <laughs> And then, oddly enough, we've also got a Golden Girl star Rue McClanahan there as a blind biology teacher, and I don't know what how she, how did she get involved in this? Yeah, <laughs> I've that's... never like every time I watch this movie, I'm like, how did like did her agent send her this? Was she just a big fan of Total Recall? Blanche, um, Blanche, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I I I don't know. It's wild to me that she um... is in this movie. <laughs> It is it is really strange because you don't see her in much around this time, I don't think. And so I don't know if I've seen her in anything except for Golden Girls and this. I mean, I know she's in other stuff, but (laughs) it's not like you see her popping up as like a character actor in things. I'd ask her, but sadly, she is gone. And Betty White is the only immortal Golden Girl. Well, she's a Highlander. Yeah, she's a Highlander. Speaking of Highlander, now that you say that, Clancy Brown is the main villain in Highlander and the Michael the Ironside's the main villain in part two. Yep. Wow. <laughs> Clancy Brown, honestly, like is one of my all time favorite character actors. So I mean, good. he is, I mean, most people probably know him best probably for Highlander and like Shawshank probably. Yeah. Uh, but he's also, uh, what's his name? Mr. Krabs on, yep. uh, on SpongeBob. Oh, but yeah. the dude is in just, Look, oh yeah like literally just look up his filmography oh, yeah. pull up He's his in... I, did, I did it because he was he was obviously i mean this jumping the gun a little bit he was in an episode of star trek enterprise so oh, i ended sure up looking, looking up his stuff and was like holy shit this is the longest resume ever <laughs> oh dude uh i mean pet cemetery 2 blue steel you know with uh oh, yeah. jamie lee curtis like even more recently i think he was in uh that mortuary collection he's supposed to be in john wick chapter four that just got announced Damn. so yeah he's He's all I love that guy. Oh, oh he's um, so good, dude. And, and the thing about him and Ironside again is, and this is for obvious reasons, and I'm sure we're gonna dive all into this, but you know, these are two guys that especially at the time, like Clancy's done some more likable roles recently, I think. But uh I'd say he's played more villains though. Yeah, but but he definitely, at least at this time, was was always a son of a bitch. Yeah. And like he's <laughs> Uh, that's usually Ironside's role a lot of the time too. Like yeah. they're just great villain uh, actors, and so. But in this movie, they're cast as heroes, which you know was I'm sure purposeful, obviously. And uh, they're heroes within the universe of the film, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like they're the good guys, and so like it's. I remember this like being for a time that you could like like Clancy Brown if 
you were not thinking about everything else. Yeah. Like, it's just like, <laughs> he's good to these people. Like he yeah, ends yeah, up being I'll... like the chubby, like I was hard on you at once, but you know, right. now we're, now we're on the same side and, you know, <laughs> but we definitely, up, kid. we definitely see him like kill a soldier. I think at one point, and he throws a knife through Jake Busey's hand, you know, like he's, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Anyway, to be so, fair, I think it, that for whatever reason in uh in that world they just have like they can fix pretty much anything except I guess the so. head blown off. Except your head getting blown in half. <laughs> they still tried though. Yeah, they, well, medic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the young cast of this, you know, made up of daytime and primetime soap op- actors. Uh, it actually caused a lot of the crew while they were filming this to refer to the movie as Melrose Space. Mm, which is a clever. just a detail that I I just love. <laughs> I just love that detail. <laughs> uh, so it, it what's become one of the film's most talked about scenes, and uh, I, I don't want to say controversial, but talked about. Cast members appear in a mixed sex shower room, which is something that we discussed it back on the, on that episode. But Verhoeven had actually attempted this a decade earlier. In fact, I done that in RoboCop too, but nobody seemed to notice. I don't know why I just turned into like Speedy Gonzalez. Adelaide! <laughs> if you look, Adelaide, take your clothes off. <laughs> that was Mickey Mouse. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever seen a Speedy Gonzalez cartoon? <laughs> <laughs> if you look when he was still a human being, they go into the police locker room. <laughs> um, anyway, in the middle of the sheet, there is a woman there topless. No one seemed to notice. I thought in Robocop, nobody noticed. So in Starship Troopers, I will make sure that they do. The idea I wanted to express was that these so-called advanced people are without libido. Here they are talking about war and their careers and not looking at each other at all. It is sublimated because they are fascists. So of course, of course, not all of the cast members saw this as a sort of political critique of authoritarianism uh, they just saw a typical attempt at sensationalism from the guy who gave us basic instinct and showgirls so they said and i don't know how many cast members were involved in this uh, in this r- little rebellion but at least a couple of them said they would only do the scene nude if verhoven directed it in the nude as well well, my cinematographer was born in a nudish colony, and I have no problem with taking my clothes off. So we did. In fact, oh, it's strange, but of course, Americans get more upset about nudity than ultraviolets. I am constantly amazed about that. I mean, I haven't seen any sex scenes in American film that are anything other than completely boring. A bare breast is more difficult to go through the sensors than a body riddled with bullets. <laughs> so he's he's not wrong, and I guess we'll we'll talk about the the sense or the ratings on this here in a bit. But while we're kind of on the in the commentary, the subject, by the way, sorry, in the commentary, they he completely completely blames it on Dina Meyer. He says, "Oh, does he? Yeah, uh, he completely blames yeah. it on Dina Meyer that she he he's, he says she's very naughty that she <laughs> <laughs> so, that she's she seems she's unassuming, but she's." She's very challenging sometimes. <laughs> so while we're on the subject of the cast, though, uh, Todd. Yes. You already mentioned Clancy Brown's appearance on Star Trek. Did you I find did. surely among this cast that's been all over television, <laughs> you found something? Oh, yeah. Some of these chuckleheads are definitely on Star Trek. We got uh, Christopher Murray, who plays Rico's dad. 
He was automobile driver in an episode of Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> automobile driver. Yeah. Don't I was you like, dare wait, say Todd doesn't dig. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I'm curious about a, an episode of Voyager that would have automobiles. Yeah. Yeah. That is well, a good I, point. Well, I think Tom Paris was kind of uh, obsessed with like uh, mid uh, mid was it 20th one of those hollow deck episodes yeah yeah <laughs> so unwind he would go to the holodeck and like drive a race car so okay all yeah right. so uh it was uh season five episode 22 11 59 that was in 1999 matt levin who plays the character of kitten smith which i don't recall from star trek troopers but he's in the cast list uh he played a character probably called, a soldier yeah yeah probably uh raffin in an episode of Star Trek Voyager season four, episode four, Nemesis, which premiered September 24th, 1997, less than two months before Starship Troopers. And of course, Dina Meyer uh, was Commander Donatra in Starship uh, in Star Trek Enterprise in 2002. Really? And then we got Brenda Strong, who plays Captain Deladier. And she was Rochella in Star Trek Next Generation, Season 1, Episode 16, When the Bow Breaks in 1988. Blake Lindsley played Katrina uh, in Starship Troopers. And she was a character sign-on in Deep Space Nine, Season 7, Episode 7, One More in Once More Into the Breach, 1998, which was written by Ronald D. Moore of Battlestar Galactica fame. And she was also Kaporak in star trek klingon academy which is a video game that came back out in 2000 and of course clancy brown was zobral in star trek enterprise season one episode 24 desert crossing which came out in 2002 and was covered on episode 21 of the computer resume podcast with special guest queen momo which is available now wherever you get your podcast. wow you got the plug in there and that's everyone <laughs> on star trek and he got a plug in there how about that yeah you, you know what's funny is time. listening back to our psychotronic uh film society episode of this i i was so proud of myself i brought up a star trek reference in that episode for starship troopers but it was about that the plot reminded me of from the original series the episode with the gorn because yep. uh it's a similar scenario where the enterprise is like going to a planet or we were describing the sub or you know whatever of this movie it was just like the enterprise goes to a planet they're just like hanging out then they start getting attacked by the gourd and so then they think they've got to fight back and then there's like confusion they can't get their translator working or whatever and while they're working they decide that they they have you know what is widely considered one of the greatest fight scenes of all time between (laughs) kirk and the gourd is Uh, it (laughs) greatest We'll put some air quotes around. Most, we'll say most iconic. There yeah. you go. <laughs> and, uh, and then until the translators get working or whatever, and then they and and unlike in Starship Troopers, when you're not a son of a bitch, you uh, are like, oh, they're just pissed off because we're like all up in their space and we don't, we should not be here. And so they work it out. And they're like, hey, we'll fuck off. And that's yeah. the way it's supposed to go i suppose that's but not how it went here not how it went here but for some reason i made that comparison i had to bring it back up here nice now interestingly this is actually one of the few verhoven films where he didn't have to really do too much to battle the mpaa over the rating there were a couple of gore shots and things like that that had to be removed to get an r he did have to go back and forth a couple of times 
uh, to prevent getting an NC-17, but it wasn't like it wasn't like a battle like he'd had to go through on. Well, Showgirls he didn't battle, but Basic Instinct and Total Recall and and RoboCop. This one was a little bit easier to go by. You know, there were a few minor tweaks that had to get made to get past the studio execs. Uh, but the film that we ended up with is pretty close to Verhoeven's original vision. Part of that is because Sony was kind of going through a lot of transition at the time. They kept like dropping their studio head and getting new ones. And there was just a lot of chaos. And I think they didn't have time to just deal with Verhoeven shit. So like he was able to get away with a little bit more gore than he might have otherwise. Now, one of the guys who helped him with this, of course, is Mark Goldblatt, the editor. Mark Goldblatt, uh, I think we've discussed him on here in the past because he he was this guy, He well, he did RoboCop, so I'm sure we discussed him on that, but he was a guy who came from Carol Co. You know, he had done like the Terminator with them and Commando and things like that. Uh, legendary kind of editor. Uh, but this is a guy who, like, you got to look at his filmography. I mean, he did everything from Piranha with Joe Dante, you know, stuff like Humanoids of the Deed, like working with a lot of Roger Corman stuff. And then he kind of he goes up through the ranks to like more studio stuff. It's a lot of like genre stuff, you know, the howling with Joe Dante Halloween too, you know, uh, but right around the time he was doing RoboCop, we didn't discuss this then, but I, I thought it interesting. He did try to make it as a director himself, Mark Goldblatt. He directed two movies right after he did RoboCop as an editor uh, because he had been a second unit director on RoboCop too. And he decided to go on his own. He made two movies in 1988 and 1989, and they were Dead Heat. Have you seen Dead Heat, guys? No. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fun. Uh, Joe Piscopo, yeah. I think uh, Joe Bob did it last season right. on, uh, on the last drive-in. So he did that, and he did The Punisher, the Dolph Lundgren Punisher. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> <laughs> Neither of which are great movies, but Dead Heat, at least, I think is well worth watching. Now, as far as other stuff that we've talked about here, I mean, he did Showgirls with Verhoeven as well, but he also did the last boy scout for, uh, for Tony Scott. And he's going to return for the film that we're talking about next week. So the guy is, the guy's pretty integral to the story of these films, I think. So upon release, Starship Troopers did prove to be one of Verhoeven's most controversial films. And it received mostly negative reviews from critics, much to Verhoeven's annoyance. A lot of American critics, totally failed to see that the film was intended as a satire and accused the director of promoting right-wing fascism. Here's what the Washington Post said in their review from 1997. Verhoeven draws parallels with vintage World War II movies right down to the reenactment of D-Day landings at Normandy, but he seems more drawn to Nazi chic than Yankee gumption. The high-ranking officers are got up as stormtroopers, The Federation's news bulletins may be computer-friendly, but the video casts themselves are modeled on the propaganda films of Nazi-spitting Lenny Reifenstahl, and the schools teach that nothing solves problems as effectively as naked force. Alas, Verhoeven's tone, which varies from camp to cynical, is so inconsistent that it's impossible to decide whether he's sending up the Third Reich or in love with it. And that's just from their review. Wow. I sent you guys another link from the Washington Post. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, did yeah. you guys read that? I did. The one about an goose artic- stepping or whatever. Yeah, the article yeah. is titled Goose Stepping into Hollywood, I believe. <laughs> uh, and it was this guy just totally like going off saying that like, essentially this was like a Nazi propaganda movie. And the thing is, first of all, any critic that watches this movie and doesn't see clearly 
that Verhoeven is satirizing and not glorifying fascism needs a new job. They should not be allowed to review movies anymore. <laughs> but also accusing Verhoeven of being a Nazi lover. Like this is a guy who grew up under Nazi occupation. We discussed that back in our flesh and blood episode. Yeah. He grew up in Nazi occupied uh, Holland and he literally saw the streets filled with bodies of people who had been killed by the Nazis as yeah. a child. I don't know that it's just, it's incredibly frustrating that people especially critics be one thing if it was audiences, but critics didn't, didn't understand that he was intending this to be a satire. And I don't see how you watch, especially those, the, the propaganda movies that are scattered throughout this. I don't know how you watch those and not know that there's the tongue is firmly planted in the cheek of Paul Verhoeven. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of comedy breaks in this movie, but the ones that there are, are pretty well, obvious. Satire and doesn't, like- like, it's kind of like I, they're clearly, yeah. It's not what this dope from the the last one you sent us, the last review you sent us. It, he clearly missed the point. I mean, satire. The, the jokes, the, the the jokes in satire are not the same as like a typical comedy. It's not a setup right. punchline kind of thing. Right. It's the entire absurdity of the situation. Uh, but I, I am wondering if uh, any. I'm wondering, Gary, what some modern day reviewers thought of, and if, if any modern reviewers might still think that Verhoeven's a fascist, or maybe they just don't like the movie. I don't, you know, who, who knows? Uh, but what did you, were you able to dig anything up on this one, Gary? Yeah. Uh, oddly, back at the time, you could find reviews like that, but like most modern reviewers seem to at least understand what Verhoeven might have been trying to go for here. I will give them that. Yeah. Uh, that does not mean. That out of all of those modern reviewers, you can't find somebody that just needs a nap. <laughs> this person gave it one star. Uh, title of the review is This is just stupid. Why did they make this? <laughs> and then the rest of the review goes on to say, And who did they make it for? It just seems like a bad comedy, but it's not billed as a comedy. It's like a parody of itself that falls flat. The only target audience I can think of is junior high school students or students, stereotypically boys who like blood and guts and violence and gore, done with realism of professional wrestling and nudity. Although I didn't know movie studios actually targeted nudity to that age group. This movie makes Sharknado look like high class. At least that one is so over the top, it's funny. This is just stupid. That sounds a lot like a couple of the reviews that we found for for Total Recall. Right, right, you're right. It really does, where they're like, oh, this, this movie's made for 12-year-olds. Most of these people are going to be about the book. I will say that. Like, that was a large amount of what I saw. This is a one star. It's, it's not the book. This movie's objective is not to fulfill the book story and plot twist. The director just got the hit of the story. Spoiled brat kills monster and becomes hero. Uh, they ruined the characters' images, ruined the plot, and some very important lessons and details that made the book a unique story. Mm. Is what these folks said. Uh, Jeff Everts gave it one out of five stars. Appalling interpretation. The book of the same name asked the question, is there a way to be a good human being and a good soldier at the same time? The book's answer was, you can't be a good soldier without being a good human first. The movie reverses this completely. From the director, war makes fascists of us all. Well, let me say this. The director is certainly entitled to his opinion, having experienced firsthand the Nazi invasion of his country. 
I respect that life experience. It's important. Writing a screenplay that opposes the prevailing opinion is a great way to go about spreading your ideas. Tenneth Lee did an excellent job in Red as Blood. Having said all that, using someone else's title and character names to market your film, your new film, is not okay. This is a bad movie, which cheapens the characters and misses the moral completely. Skip this and move on. Uh, this person uh, says, thank goodness Heinlein died before this movie was made. I recently read the book that this movie was, in quotes, based on, and I'm flabbergasted at how this film was made based on the source material. It turns the ideology of the book on its head, delivering a completely opposite message about the military duty, service, and self-sacrifice for the greater good. It was the equivalent of having a movie adaptation of 1984 that sided with the government as a comedy. This is utter garbage. I couldn't even finish this. Uh, this one's titled On the Rotational Velocity of Deceased Authors. This is probably one of the worst movie ad adaptations of a book in the history of cinema. It bears only a, the most superficial resemblance to the classic novel by Robert Heinlein. It proves what's more that Hollywood has utter contempt for the profession of writing, whether of books or screenplays. Hollywood producers seem to believe that writing is a superfluous element in the making of films and their disregard for its important importance is obvious in these in movies such as this we have seen a trend to use special effects as a crutch for weak plots and inadequate acting but here we can add to this the defamation of the work of a deceased author as for judging it as a movie on its own merits it has none if you are if you have nothing better to do than to watch this movie you need to try harder <laughs> wow uh, it says it's not it's worth hack not worth the time investment, even if you're fast forwarding through it. A lot of these people are, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine, honestly, when people are judging a movie solely on whether it's, it's an accurate adaptation of its source material. Yeah, you know, a lot of these I, people are upset. That, that seems like the majority of this stuff when really like, and I, I get that if you love the book, you want to see a accurate adaptation a lot of them seem to be completely missing the point of what Verhoeven's trying to do but also like the book exists on its own a movie can exist on its own and some things work in one setting and some things work in the other like the mech suits we were talking about and how silly they would look jumping up and down across the screen you know uh, they made that decision because they thought it would not look right whereas in your mind as you're reading the book it's not going to be as big of a deal so the, to to judge a movie based on how accurate it is to the source material. I mean, I get it if you're close to the source material, it being frustrating, but judge a movie based on its own merits. You know, uh, I will and say a this. lot of these people don't seem to be doing that. Yeah. I, they're, they're clearly not. And, and they're disappointed because they apparently watched it because of the book. And, and again, I haven't read the book either. So, um, but I will say, I, I got a couple of quick ones here that, that are, I think their point is trying to be, and I'm not saying I agree or disagree. I'm just saying that even the point of the book is removed from this. So like everything except the title is different. So like they're uh, like, this one says Heinlein wrote a masterpiece that tries to show the justification for the use of force and the need for a well-disciplined military. The screen adaptation turns it into beautiful fascists from outer space with tactical noobs. I'm not even going to get into the technical aspects of the movie. I guess I should sum it up by saying it was a horrible, it was horrible, awful, and painfully bad. Uh, on the lighter side, the special effects are cool. I do wish the bugs had weapons. That's what that person said. The uh, bugs are weapons. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and, they they got you know the they got tanker bugs. They got 
the the ground grunt bugs they've got the uh the the nuclear bugs that shoot the like stuff out of their butthole yeah <laughs> uh this person seems to understand it's different but they call that this review is titled a perversion of Heinlein's novel uh it says this movie is beyond wretched it had the potential to be no more than a b-grade sci-fi monster movie with classy special effects but for some reason Fairhoven decided that he had to make it into a twisted version of Heinlein's writing those who have seen the movie but not read the book may be shocked to learn that what Heinlein actually wrote was a story about a fundamentally noble human culture with the moral justifications for war against an implacable or implacable enemy. There was none of Verhoeven's pseudo-Nazi fascism and grade school quality propaganda in Heinlein's not version. Film adaptations of books inevitably leave something of the book behind, but Verhoeven has managed to raise this to a truly dreadful art in Starship Troopers. Virtually nothing of the book remains except for some of the characters' names, and even most of those have been switched. For example, in the book, Lieutenant Rasak uh, was never a school teacher. That man's name was Dubois, and Private Flores was male. Worst of all, though, is Verhoeven's twisted version of Heinlein's philosophy. Verhoeven has literally turned the moral center of the novel completely backwards, then tacked Heinlein's name on it as though it were a legitimate portrayal of what Heinlein was actually saying. Using a man's name to legitimize what is no more than a parody of his work is simply wrong. Bottom line, it's a bad movie made for rotten reasons out of an otherwise great piece of literature. Well, first of all, they have to put Robert Heinlein's name on it because legally <laughs> they purchased the rights to the novel. And they, it's, it's, they I'm pretty sure that. that is a a requirement when you do that, unless the author asked not to do that. In which case, well, Heinlein couldn't do that because he's dead. Yeah, uh, But... <laughs> Is that all of them? Uh, well, I was going to say, if I may, I do have one more that is strictly towards the movie. And uh, this is uh, from Letterboxd from uh, Bob Bobastare, who says, nope, still don't see why people like this. Give it one star. It's not satire because, spoiler alert, because fuck you, the bugs die, the queen gets captured, and the fascist good guys win, et cetera, et cetera. Despite the cheese and blatant simple-mindedness of the fascist good guys, there's never any indication from the movie that they're wrong. The audience might think it, but as far as we know, the movie doesn't. It's like calling Birth of a Nation a satire. The story is absurd in our contemporary cultural context, but there is no sign from the text here that that's the intended reaction. Just because it plays its absurdity straight face doesn't mean it's not stupid. A few, reason why this, a few reasons why this movie is absurd. The protagonist is living his old fan fiction. He's a couple of notches above Harry Potter and Geralt of Rivia in terms of self-insert. Again, everyone's fascist and it's played straight. Neil Patrick Harris's outfit at the end. Every major character, each at a a childhood friend of the protagonist, Mary Sue, ends up in a position of comparably ludicrous power in the military by a series of rapid impulses from their CEOs and are, of course, ultimately reunited and happy-go-lucky, skipping across the desert back to their gunships despite having just witnessed and partaken in terrifying and mortally dangerous situations. Neil Patrick Harris is unironically a psychic. Despite being born and raised in Argentina, Mary Sue and family are whiter than polar bears playing ultimate frisbee in a snowstorm. 
Nobody gives a shit about Mary Sue's poor decisions or the consequences they bring. And despite the fact that Mary Sue is likable as a particularly wealthy, as likable as a particularly wealthy bit of cardboard, he never gets at any serious flack for those consequences. The formations of the soldiers are batshit crazy in the very essence of war of attrition, despite it being half past the future. We have millennia of military tactics for those who care about those sorts of things like Civil War buffs. The movie never dissuades you from thinking that war is fun. In short, playing a joke straight face the whole way through with no punchline is not a joke at all. This movie is not satire. It is not secretly smart. This movie is a pubescent boy's half-baked fantasy brought to the big screen with presentation and that is as dodgy as its content. Who are they calling a Mary Sue? Johnny Rico? Yeah, I think they're calling Johnny Rico a Mary Sue. Well, I think a male version of a Mary Sue would be called a Gary Stew. <laughs> a Gary Stew. I hate that. <laughs> One review, I mean, by the way, on Letterboxd was just one star that said there is a momentary shot of a dead dog. Okay. I think that was my wife who wrote that one. Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't 100% know it's under a different name, but I'm just saying. <laughs> I mean, some of these people seem to at least know that Verhoeven was attempting a satire, even if they don't think that he did a good job, which I, I personally disagree with. Uh, but at the time that it came out, a lot of people didn't seem to get the joke back in 1997. Uh, the film was seen as juvenile and crass, or it just wasn't seen at all. The film ended up grossing only uh, barely half of its $100 million budget here in the U.S. Mm. And I, I don't think it's necessarily like a huge surprise that some of the folks who saw it back then didn't love it. Uh, especially if they didn't get the satay, or maybe if they did, maybe they, it just pissed them off because Verhoeven is basically giving a big old middle finger to the USA and specifically uh, America's military industrial complex. Uh, a lot of people are not going to take very kindly to that. Yeah, I mean, in, in his version of the future, so humankind has started colonizing other worlds and they pissed off a giant, uh, a species of giant bugs in the process, which is, uh, kind of what Gary was getting at with the uh, the Star Trek original series comparison, you know, mm-hmm. they are just the bugs are just trying to defend themselves. They're not trying to start a war. We invaded their we invaded their area, mm-hmm. and they're just trying to fight back. As uh, but but we as as we we often tend to do, we viewed their self defense as acts of aggression. And decided to launch a war against these bugs in a war that we can't possibly win. Because the whole time they're fighting this, it's this is an unwinnable war. The bugs are undoubtedly a better force yeah. than, than the military in this film. Yeah, I mean, sheer numbers. Sheer numbers and just strength. Yeah. I mean, it, I, it does speak, I think, a lot. The, the film speaks a lot to, I think, Americans' deep-rooted jingoism. And for somehow the very blatant, very unsubtle satire of this film just wasn't recognized for what it was. I don't know if people were just blind to it or they just went in with a different expectation and didn't see it. I'm not sure. But it's very... Now, I mean, maybe... And this, this could be us speaking in hindsight because there's been you know, almost a quarter century of discussion around this film since then. But I think you watch it now and it's very blatantly a satire, even more so than RoboCop. 
Well, and, uh, and of multiple different things. And I don't think that it even lands on anything. I mean, there, there's clearly like, there is the Nazi aspect of it, but fascism is, is the point here. And yeah. even hearing uh, Neumeier and uh, Berhoven talk about it, it's more, you know, Nazis are the easy one. That's the, that well, they're the bad and, guys. And the, and the, um, the visualization of the Nazi aspect of, of fascism is, it's pretty easy to get across. There's a lot of iconic imagery, like in the uniforms yeah. in the, uh, in the sets, like which is a good, uh, a good point towards what you're saying about like people not getting it. That's like, well, they're clearly like, I mean, when you see Doogie Hauser walk out in all black, he's in like, an SS uniform. Yeah. He's you know? clearly a fucking Nazi. Yeah. Like he's, you know, that's just it. Uh, they, they even play though with like, you know, like the Melrose place, the whole first part of this movie. Is oh, the, the that. love triangle. Yeah. Yeah. And supposedly, like, they even had it, you know, there was interesting during the commentary they were talking about with Denise Richards. They had her actually, like, kissing both guys, and they, they were going to have it, like, she she actually did love both of them. And uh, and so it was a struggle for her, but she had to choose what was best for her, which led to her breaking up with Rika. And they said, like, test audiences, like, fucking hated it. Yeah. Like, they got <laughs> angry about it, that she wow. would have to choose – that she was struggling between the two guys and they just hated her and hated her. They were like, we were trying to be good feminists and be like this. No, she's the strong one. Like she's, she's got two possible options here. She loves both, but she's having to choose what's best for her and like move on. And they're like, people just fucking hated Denise Richards. They were like, <laughs> they were done with her. And Oof. they especially didn't want any more leading on of Johnny Rico during the movie. And uh, so they cut like a lot of the, of the love triangle stuff, I guess, oh. like just uh, somewhere in there. But anyway, that's a side note, but I just thought that was interesting, but, but yeah, they play it like Melrose place at the beginning. And then, but you know, like a lot of it is not even, you know, just trying to be like straight up all about Nazi. Like uh, one of the things they bring up uh, and a couple of things I've seen was Verhoeven talking about just like, well, look at them, you know, like they're in this world where uh, we try to establish that, there are lots of lots of different areas of this. Like, for instance, Johnny's parents are, they're like in this society, they're the labor class, they're the working class, and they just got established into this certain position that they're rich, and that's looked upon as great. You don't get to vote, but you don't have to care about anything else that's going on or something right. like that. So they were even trying to toy with that a little bit, and they were saying that, you know, you're in a perfect society. Like Verhoeven straight up, like literally says in one thing I read, it was like, you are in the perfect, politically correct, accurate society. Like there is no racism. There is no bigotry. There is no nothing. Like it's just everybody gets along and everybody agrees on these certain principles. But what did you have to do to have it happen? Right. And, yeah. What, at what cost? Yeah. yeah. And they're like, you got it, but how did you get it? And, yeah. uh, he says that that's a, like another thing they were looking at. And, well, that's uh, the thing. In, in the world of this film, fascism has won. You know, everything that you see, it, it looks pretty and shiny on the outside, but it's like this is a society that's geared around and idealizes the military. Like, we don't see a lot of the world outside the lives of the main characters, so everything we see is kind of through the prism of, of their experiences, but we do still see the effects of war in the scarred and disfigured bodies of their teachers and Michael Ironside missing his arm and the uh, the guy when they're when they're signing up when they're you know 
mm-hmm. getting their assignments, who's missing an arm and both legs. And in Rue McClanahan's character, who has clearly been blinded in war, you know, all the adults are like scarred, injured people. Yeah, <laughs> everyone. Like, these kids are brought up to think that war is such a part of life. Like we mentioned earlier, a quote from Verhoeven, but like, I mean, that he's, he's saying these people are, they have no libido because their, their big concern is like war is exciting. Like war is just a part of things. So that's why even when like people die, it's like, you know, that's, well, that's what you signed up for. Like, this is the ultimate like place to be like, this is what you do. Yeah. I mean, the, the movie basically tracks Johnny's rise from like a directionless kid kind of high schooler to a mindless war machine. Yeah, because that's that's all that this society praises. Uh, and he's really just doing it, honestly, because he wants to get laid. Like, like he's <laughs> he, 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 go, he goes because he's following a woman and, and his and then his rise through the military ranks, as we see throughout the film is fueled mostly by the deaths of his fellow troopers. Like somebody dies and he gets a promotion. It happens over and over throughout the yeah. movie. Well, and he sticks around because his parents die. Like that, that's something straight up. They cover in the commentary too, that they, they mentioned is like, so well said. I mean, like Johnny Rico is rich. Like his family is rich. He doesn't have to do this thing. He is right. doing it because of a girl, which is yeah. Verhoeven said that they talked to like multiple military members who's, talked about signing up because of a member of the opposite sex or yeah. something like that and so like he does this not for any like moral thing that he's trying to accomplish like he's actually just doing it for for pussy yeah he's not <laughs> he's not uh he doesn't have like any great aspirations he doesn't have any great feelings about being a citizen he is horny yeah, and he wants he <laughs> yeah. wants her, and so he signs up. He jumps into the military, and then when she dumps him, I mean that's pretty much it for him. Like, and then he, you know, like loses a uh, troop. Like, I mean, you know, like the person that died. It's just all this stuff adds up. He's just like, well, I'm getting out of here. Like, yeah, and he starts is- to leave, and then they get attacked, and he has to start up. Again. Yeah, the Buenos Aires gets blown up, and so that that changes everything. One reason the film was misunderstood is that it's almost too good. At doing the things that it's, it's satirizing. I think some of those reviews that you read, Gary, are kind of a kind of point to this fact. Like it's almost a little too straight faced that people didn't understand that it was a satire. Well, I, I, I that that was one of the things I hated about those reviews, actually. And I was going to mention that is that, you know, they, they give so much shit to like Neil Patrick Harris walking out looking like a Nazi. And they're like, OK, yeah, we get it. Blah, blah, blah. But as a younger guy, when I first saw this movie, that was not something I thought of. Right. Legitimately, I did not get it. And uh, but you were like 15. Yeah. Yeah. I just mean, like, so I don't know that it says I mean, it is on the nose, but I don't consider this film as on the nose as. Everybody says, like, clearly the people at the time did not fucking get it. They didn't understand it, like the critics. And so it gives you all the context clues that it can in the idea of, like, well, Buenos Aires gets blown up. But then later on, I mean, it clearly seems like the bugs are the bad guys from their POV. But then later on, you find out there was like a Mormon settlement on this planet that these people all got attacked. So that that was the... Uh, you know the the cause of anybody even realizing this planet was a thing and then 
you start to get into the details about like, okay, well, so then the military now knows this is a thing. And what is it about this planet that they like? And, you know, there's even, I don't know, like you could start to draw your own conclusions about like, was Buenos Aires even really a bug attack for God's sake? Who knows? You know, like if you want to get all conspiracy theory about it. So it's like, we started it by settling there. And, uh, you know, they weren't wanted Uh, and the, the Mormons, Per usual started. I'm just kidding. Wait. Don't pull that. Card <laughs> <laughs> Don't pull that card. Um, <laughs> no, it, it was just it's it's interesting to me because I, I think in the commentary actually Verhoeven references like the Iran hostage crisis or something like that that say like you know these these people were taken hostage but they had settled in an area where they weren't wanted in the first place and nobody thought you know that that he was saying that like people with power right the history and so they get to say whatever they want to say caused this thing so the iranian hostage crisis was as simple as they've taken a bunch of people hostage he's like it was no discussion of well they settled in a place that they weren't wanted and then also like the government that was in power was put there by the cia back at this time and like he starts going down this list and you're like holy shit like it's just yeah, like yeah. it's way more complex but for all it, for all of our purposes, the Iranians were bad people, and they just took these, <laughs> like they just right. took these people hostage. That's the that's the only part of the story you need to know. And uh, so, anyway, it's just it's it, it's interesting to see that like uh, it, it's clearly about the people in power get to decide how it sounds and how the world works, and they usually decide that with violence. And yeah, so I mean that's that's Michael Ironside's character in those early scenes in the school where he's just he all but says like totalitarianism is the way to go not democracy yeah they straight up i mean so so yeah even there like they straight he says up straight up says in that classroom like when we found when it was discovered that democracy doesn't work yeah uh, you know like this is this is what we found out and i think that's verhoven's like point is just like yeah i mean you know once you get enough power whoever it is once they get enough power that generally they're like, we don't have to do democracy anymore because it takes too long and we'll, uh, we'll use that power by violence if necessary to just make what we want to fucking have happen, happen. One thing that, what, what I think of Verhoeven's sharpest tools in getting the satire across in this movie are, are those newsreels uh, that he used to great effect in RoboCop, but I would argue he uses them to an even greater effect here. Uh, Like the, you know, the recruitment videos and the commercials scattered throughout, like especially the ones that bookend the film, the one at the very beginning, the one at the very end. I think that really shows you Verhoeven's intent. That's why I said earlier, like I can't imagine anyone seeing these and not knowing that this is a satire. Uh, Cause even at the, the one at the end, basically it's sort of a victory show, but also like, we're going to keep fighting. You know, there's no end to this war. Uh, the the violence is not going to end now that we've quote unquote won because there, there is no winning it. You know, uh, but I think he uses these incredibly well. Like like the, there's also the one where you've got uh, the kids stomping on the bugs. You know, it's like a commercial, mm-hmm. and that's just kind of showing. It's almost a form of like brainwashing the kids into thinking, hey, these bugs are inhuman. Uh, which I, I mean, you know what I mean, inhuman. <laughs> but, right, right. You know. <laughs> but, 
but that's how we see them as nothing more than something to be squashed. Mm. Well, it's like clearly, clearly they're not like sentient beings with like a conscience or a thought process, anything more than just insects. Like they're just monsters that murder things, which they play to great effect uh, a couple of times, strictly by the way, with eyes, which we talked about back in, uh, Oh God. What was the Toby Hooper movie? Uh, with the guy remember when when the the cast the full body cast was on the guy the eyes looked like uh are you talking about um dead and buried yeah the Dan, it wasn't toby hooper but yeah oh yeah 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 you're right that was the dan O'Bannon. it was the dan O'Bannon, yeah uh so when the eyes were like so effective i've never realized like how much maybe that's why i have such a uh hatred for eyeball violence because it's like they're almost the windows to the soul by one. Whoa, one did you just make say. that up? What? <laughs> what? Holy, just, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's, write that down. That's a quote from a Gary Horde. Uh, <laughs> are the window. Yeah. Because in that, that's like a full like fucking puppet. And the eyeballs like seem legit. Like they seem like there's emotion in them. And they do that what with are you the talking bugs. about? The, the bug? Oh, you're yeah, talking well, about in Dead and Buried. Well, in Dead and Buried, yes. And then I was going to say they do it again not not they do it again but like it's the same kind of thing in, in this when like remember there's the point where the one bugs on the ground and you see like it looking at the soldier yeah, its yeah, eye, yeah. and then it like takes its pov as the soldier just like blows its face off or whatever and it's like yeah you almost kind of feel bad you're like there's there's something there besides just it's not just a, a mindless like yeah it's yeah. <laughs> it's like uh just a mindless beast and and especially with the brain bug at the end oh yeah uh, they get know, it where like it goes from being, puppy dog eyes yeah where it goes from like being a super creepy gross monster to like by the end where nph is like saying it's scared it looks scared it looks yeah. right and you know like it's kind of sad like i remember watching it. it even the first time being like i feel i kind of feel bad for this which thing. is exactly what you're supposed to feel yeah you're supposed exactly. to feel bad for it. and i find it interesting also the parallels between between the humans and the bugs in the military ranks, because you've got these grunts on the ground that are just sort of expendable, which is what Johnny Rico and, and the, what they start out off as, you know, the troopers on the ground, just like the bugs, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're the ones that kind of the, the front line that just are sort of expected to get slaughtered. And then at the top of the ranks, you've got the brain bug and you've got the psychics, the military intelligence, as they call them, like, like neil patrick harris very yep. similar hierarchy between the humans and the bugs it's very interesting mm-hmm. i will say this too watch neil patrick harris throughout this movie um he's a fucking psychopath like from the start like he <laughs> yeah he he really is like he's he's not he is not normal like he doesn't seem like he's buddies he is clearly one of these nazi scientists that yeah. like just you know like the exact kind of person you would see like running hydra or something it's like fucking joseph Mengele. yeah he he's like sitting there like i mean even with like carmen and rico first meet like he tries to kiss carmen and then later he's like as soon as at the prom like uh rico leaves uh dizzy like he swoops in so he's just like i will i will take whatever i can get you know like he's, he's just like yeah. yeah and then he's sitting there running experiments on rico you know they're supposed to be best friends but there's nothing like super friendly he's like clearly rico looks at him as a friend but like for neil patrick harris he's just kind of like let me see how these powers work do i have it and then he like yeah. sees if he can control his bear i don't know if you watch it again like 
Neil Patrick Harris is never like human in his emotions at right. all. Like he is clearly just a weirdo obsessed with control. I think uh, Verhoeven is also once again proving himself to be kind of spookily prescient with his satire. You know, in this film, he he's kind of using the film to critique everything from the fascism of the Nazis to, I think, Vietnam and even the then recent Gulf War. Uh, I've actually got a quote here from Verhoeven about this. When the Kuwait War started, there was an enormous amount of propaganda in the American media to prepare the American nation for this war. To get the American people behind the government and the war, the USA vilified continuously the other side. The same thing happened when Iraq nearly started the war again. You could read in the newspapers every day, again, more vilification of Shaddam Hussein. True or untrue. And you, you do see that type of vilification in the film, you know, like that commercial that I mentioned, the commercial where the kids are uh, stomping on the roaches and in a lot of the other propaganda films where it talks about b- bugs. I mean, the government is training kids to believe that all bugs are bad, or as they actually say in the film, the only good bug is a dead bug, which is a phrase that in itself brings to mind anti-Japanese sentiment during uh, World War II, or if you want to go even further back, the slaughtering of the Native Americans. Mm. Like that, that is a phrase, the only good, excuse the term, but the only good Jap is a dead Jap is something that was, was a phrase that was used as propaganda against the Japanese during World War II, or the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Mm. There, uh, was a, there was a quote from Verhoeven I, I wrote down, like from, uh, well, well, he said it, and I, and I didn't have time to look completely into it, but it was called like, he said it was like a theory called like Schmidt theory or something like that. Oh, I, I can't remember if that was exactly right, but it was that for a nation to define itself, it needs to define its enemy. And, yeah. and hmm. I thought that that was really uh, well said. He's such a s- smart dude. <laughs> yeah. And, and these themes though, these themes still sadly resonate today. Just a few years after this film's release, History would once again repeat itself with the U.S.'s invasion of Afghanistan, which is something that this very week we're seeing the horrible after effects of. Yeah. yeah. We, I, I literally thought of that as I was watching this movie. I was like, fuck, man, we're going to celebrate the 20th anniversary of 9-11 talking about Afghanistan again. Not for yeah. like great reasons. Not Yeah. 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 And here, here's another angle that I thought of while watching this movie, though. The entire movie is also sort of staged as a propaganda film itself. Uh, like as if, as if this movie is sort of a dramatization of a, an actual soldier named Johnny Rico and about his rise, but it's starring some like a pampered actor who looks like Casper Van Dien, you know, like that could very well be, be what Verhoeven is trying to do. Cause that has been done. I mean, there. I, I wish I could remember the name, or I had written down the name of the movie. But there was a movie that came out that starred a a soldier from I think I want to say World War II, and it was a it was a dramatization. But he actually played himself in the movie, yeah. which is something that Quentin Tarantino played on. And in, in uh, I, was, I was just about to say, Glorious Bastards. Yeah, sounds familiar. Uh, yeah, he one hundred percent. You can find him talking about this. That that was the idea. You're yeah. watching 
you are a part of this society watching a propaganda film. Yeah. And it's it, not it, just like Nazi propaganda or Third Reich stuff. He's like, this is also based a lot on American propaganda films. Yeah, absolutely. There's stuff they show like when they first land on the alien planet, this like storming the beaches of Normandy. Dude, watch some of the propaganda videos from World War II. You know, like yeah. that, that that was produced by Americans, not not by the Nazis, but by the Americans. I mean, this is... Johnny Rico goes through this. We're stuff playing from the like, same playbook. Yeah, you know? and he says, like, I mean, it's like literally, like the the thing Denise Richards sends him to break up with him is is called a dear Johnny letter. Like it's you know widely known for like soldiers who like join up for women and then they get their dear John letter or whatever that like breaks up with them and they move on and that's part of the soldier's life. He's like it's all it's all like pulling from the military playbook like just all the common themes and that sort of thing of a propaganda film and you're supposed to be watching it to the point that literally in the commentary Neumeyer and Verhoeven are uh literally talking about how Verhoeven saying you know one of the fun things is uh he's saying I show these commercials and they're, they're like telling you like would you like to know more would you would you you know, should we attack them? Should we do all these things? I'm asking the audience. And Newmar's like, and generally the audience would like to see more. They would like to know more. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And he's <laughs> like, well, this is true. And he's the Newmar's like, so I think what we're saying is like potentially like all of us have fascism inside of us in our blood. <laughs> and like Verhoeven's <laughs> like, I will let you argue that point. I will not touch that one. Not touching touching that one. (laughs) But I mean, I think the fact, the idea that you're watching a propaganda movie is proven more by the fact that it is bookended with those videos, those kind of recruitment videos Mm. at the beginning and end of the movie. You know, what better way than to show this rollicking story of a hero's rise. And then at the end, you've got that very hero asking you to join the fight you know it's it's i think it's really outstanding i think this is possibly verhoeven's smartest movie and like we've said time and again verhoeven is like a certifiable genius like he legitimately is an incredibly intelligent person and this i think is his most fighting satire and his smartest movie yet now, Starship Troopers wasn't as big of a disappointment at the box office as Showgirls, but it only grossed about $55 million domestic. Uh, but just as Showgirls did, Starship Troopers gained a major cult following on video and is often spoken about in the same terms as Robocop when Verhoeven's career is discussed these days, you know, many years later. Mm. And all in all, you know, it did decent overseas and through like re-release and doing well on video it's made something like 121 million dollars worldwide so it's turned out to do very well and of course it has uh i guess surprisingly but maybe not considering it it did gain a cult following but it has been followed by several sequels uh the first one is called starship troopers 2 hero of the federation which was written by ed newmeyer and directed by phil tippett himself Uh, The film premiered on the Encore Action Channel in 2004 before being released on video. I happened to watch this film this weekend. Uh, It's not good. Uh, (laughs) It is actually very bad. Uh, It's got some, it's got potential, but it's, the story is very interesting. It's, it's like, it's set on in this, the soldiers are kind of trapped in this facility and the bugs have been able to sort of control people by like 
they've got like these bugs that'll crawl into you and take over your brain and, you know, Ooh. it's and control people. It, it's got potential, but I mean, it's a very, very low budget and mm-hmm. it just, it feels like a direct to a made for TV movie, honestly. And that was followed by another sequel in 2008. Starship Troopers three Marauder was both written and directed by Ed Newmeyer. And unlike part two, which had an entirely different cast, part three saw the return of at least one cast member from the original film, which was Casper Van Dien as Johnny Rico. Uh, he has also joined his co-star and I would say the star of the film because uh, she's in it more than Johnny Rico, but, uh, Jolene Blaylock from Star Trek Enterprise is in yeah. Star Trek Troopers 3. And it's also not great. It's better yeah. than part two. It's better than part two, but it's also not great. But uh, I mean, you know, it's another one that had potential. It just has a pretty low budget. And it's also feels about half an hour too long, honestly. Mm. Uh, I got like, I was halfway through the movie and I thought it was almost over. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, there's another hour of this. <laughs> All right. So, so essentially Verhoeven is like the master of starting franchises that the sequels that turn out can't. terrible. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. cannot, the sequels can't touch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, nobody's got his touch. Even Ed Newmeyer, who is a, I think a good, a good writer, he still can't, he doesn't have Verhoeven's touch. You know, like the thing with Starship Troopers and Robocop is that they've got that combination of Newmeyer's script and Verhoeven's sort of like just a special thing that he brings to it that other directors simply can't pull off because mm. there there are some satirical elements to both of those films two and three uh, especially part three which is actually the propaganda movies in part three because those those continue throughout they're in part two a little bit only kind of at the beginning and end but they're kind of scattered throughout part three and those are the best parts of the movie because uh, wow. they're actually very funny and very well done but the rest <laughs> of the movie kind of suffers Uh, That film, though, part three was followed by two computer animated films set in the Starship Troopers universe. The first, which was released in 2012, is called Starship Troopers Invasion. It's a Japanese-American co-production. It was directed by anime director Shinji Aramaki and written by Flint Dill, uh, who is best known for his work in the 80s on TV shows like G.I. Joe and Transformers. Here are the Transformers movie, you know, uh, but then Shinji, uh, and that, that one is all new cast it is the same characters it's got like carmen and johnny and people from the original film but different voice actors mm. roles but then shinji aramaki returned to direct the next installment which is 2017 starship troopers traitors of mars he directed it alongside uh, masaru matsumoto uh, with ed newmeyer returning to write it and this most recent sequel sees actually the return of casper van dien as johnny rico and dina meyer as dizzy flores and I didn't have time to watch these this week. I watched uh, a little bit of the last one and fell asleep. That, I'm if very that's, curious if that's an indicator Dizzy, of how good it is. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm curious as to how Dizzy Flores shows back up, considering she was very, very dead. Yeah. Uh, don't spoil it for me, Todd, because I'm probably okay. going to watch it in the next couple of days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> just as invested. I'm all in. I'm, I'm all in on the saga of Johnny Rico. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I think both of those are on Netflix, aren't they? They are. Yeah, I think the animated ones, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'll watch it. And there was also a TV show uh, called I watched, Starship I, Troopers Rough. Yeah, Mix. I watched the TV show in high school. It, it was, only lasted about a season. It and there's really been talk just about, focused on, like, 
hey, we're gonna we got this mission to go shoot some bugs, and right, that yeah. that was that was it. <laughs> <laughs> and there's been talk of a reboot and everything, of course, as there always is these days. But you know, this original movie again, like we said with Total Recall and Robocop, like you know, they remade both of those, but the remakes just don't capture that satire, you know. From dude, from the, he's Ver, Verhoeven. It's sad that he's he's still kicking and oh, still making movies. Yeah, we're but but not as on a large a scale. Uh, but I mean, we're gonna round him off next week, I guess. But uh, you you kind of touched on it, but just how prescient he is, uh, even with this movie. I mean, it's think about crazy, this: man. it being nineteen ninety seven, and the way that they're what like the way that that shit's popping up, like the news things. That's like YouTube or like social media or whatever. Like it's that's or and. Not, not to sorry to interrupt you, but that you've speaking to that point, you've got that scene where you've got the two talking heads fighting about the bugs. Yeah, I was that was where I was going next. It's like you also have like the fucking newsroom show that's and like Fox News had debuted 13 months before this movie came out. <laughs> they did it, they say in the commentary, even the one where uh, where the reporter is in the locker rooms or whatever, like on the base, and like. He's interviewed Dina Meyer, Jake Busey, and then like Johnny Rico, like sees him talking and runs over. And he's like, I'm from Buenos Aires. And I say, kill them all. You know, that whole scene. He was like, that was straight up based on, uh, he was like during the Iraq war, like a CNN thing we had seen. And he was like, that was, that was straight up where we stole that from. He was like, it was almost like directly ripped from a thing we had seen on CNN. That's crazy. So I guess this is about time that we need to discuss further viewing. If you guys were going to do a double feature with uh, Starship Troopers and another film, what uh, what would you do? If I could, if I could throw out a couple from left field that I think would fit perfectly with Starship right. Troopers, it would be. There's a film uh, from God, I don't know. It was back in like 1987, almost ten years prior. Uh, but RoboCop. If you guys haven't seen that, <laughs> it would probably go really well with this. <laughs> or if you want to go just a little bit earlier, go with like, uh, there's one with Arnold called Total Recall. That would also, <laughs> I think either one of those would be like perfect yeah, double feature. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. You're on the right track there, Gary. Honestly, I think Robocop Starship Troopers is great. And, and a trilogy I think it's perfect, honestly. of sci-fi movies, uh, that, that would be an ideal, the ideal way to go. Is, oh, yeah. is Paul Verhoeven's sci-fi trilogy. <laughs> if I was going to go 10 years earlier and uh, I did write this one down and still stick with Arnold. So if I had to combine those two things, I'd say the running man is kind of cool. Yeah, that would be a good mm. one. That's a good satire. Yeah. It's more so, of a satire of like the way we consume entertainment almost, but it is set in sort of a totalitarian a vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, it, it works. Running so Man holds up, man. I watched it um, about a year ago for the first time in at least a decade, and it it held up. I thought pretty well. Oh yeah, that's a good one. I like uh, apt pupil. I feel yeah. like uh, I feel like this can buy a child molester. I, yeah, I feel like this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I feel like this. I feel like Starship Troopers would have been that kid's favorite movie. And man, I, I like that we just went with two path. Stephen King adaptations in a row. Yeah, Steve, well, Running Man and that pupil. Clearly, King's a Nazi. <laughs> uh, if we've learned nothing else, <laughs> have you seen it? That's Nazi propaganda's finest. 
Equilibrium. I feel like that's an obvious one you'd, you'd throw in there. Like to yeah. me, I was like, that just, or, oh, 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 the other one is uh, District 9. Like I thought District 9 worked really well with this. Yeah, too. that would, District 9 is a good one. That's a very, I think that would work really well. Yeah, I'm call. going a little older than you guys. I'm going Dr. Strangelove. Okay. Well, Ooh. yeah, that makes sense. Dr. That, Strangelove as a, as a satire, like I mean, oh, I think well, Doctor yeah. Strange Love is one of the best ever ever made. I think and, and military satire, yes, yeah. specifically, mm-hmm. like it's uh, what one hundred percent. And and I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I swear to God, I I remember Fairhoven saying something in the commentary, like referencing Kubrick. Uh, oh yeah, a couple of times. So, I, I like, can imagine that had to be on his mind. And if you want to go with the non-satire route, just one that I think would be fun to put up against this one just in terms of tone almost, although this one leans a little goofier, uh, Mars attacks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it could work. I, just, I love Mars attacks and that's another <laughs> alien invasion movie. I mean, not that this one's really an invasion. We are the invaders in starship troopers. Technically. Um, uh, live, live, die, repeat or whatever. Uh, oh, you know, edge of tomorrow, edge of tomorrow. <laughs> The that, actual that was, name of the movie. Yeah, yeah, the actual <laughs> name. Of, but they put out that one DVD with like live, die, repeat. Oh, I know. It. It's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, that's actually the better title, though. It is. Well, the original title of that was All You Need Is Kill. All You Need Is Kill. Yeah. That's what they should have called the movie. That, that's a great that's, name. That's a great title. <laughs> that's the name of the novel that it's based on. One thing I did want to get in there is that I thought was very interesting. That was just a side random note. But, you know, the... uh the composer here is back to RoboCop. It's uh, oh, it's, Basil. It's old Basil. God, what's his last name? It's uh, Polidoros uh, or something. Polidoros. Like yeah, yeah. Pol- Polidoros or something like that. Sorry if I'm fucking it up. But yeah, anyway, that is his daughter on stage at the prom. Oh, yeah. Like her first movie credit, and she's like she she works on like a lot of uh, musical stuff now. But she she's singing a song there, an original, and the first song. But then its second song that she sings is uh, it's called uh, "Have Not Been to Paradise." It's the song that she's singing, but it's actually a David Bowie song called "Have Not Been to Oxford Town," and. David Bowie like gave them the song and let them rewrite the lyrics to it. So the re- lyrics reference like the 23rd century and like all of this stuff, but it's like they huh. took the David Bowie song and she sings it, but like it with new Starship Troopers lyrics. Interesting. Huh. If we're talking about some familial connections, uh, there is, so Paul Verhoeven's daughter was actually working as a compositor for Phil Tippett studio oh, on wow. this film. Yeah. So she, so some of that, that uh, digital compositing that's done in this, her name's uh, Martine Verhoeven, I believe uh, she worked as a digital compo- compositor on this. Uh, <laughs> and, and while we're talking about cameos in the film, Ed Newmeyer's in it. Ed Newmeyer plays the guy who you see in one of the propaganda videos. Um, he's the guy who gets like, a trial and then they're like execution tonight, you know, and it shows him like, it shows him up close, like the camera's right in his face and he kind of bows his head. He's the guy who gets, who gets (laughs) like accused, tried and executed all in one day. (laughs) Uh, So that's him. And then, and then also John Davison, who was the producer on the film, the kind of the guy who was 
responsible for for getting the rights to the novel for for Ed Newmeyer. John Davison is also in the film. He's one of the survivors of the uh, the Buenos Aires attack that's on the news. Oh, uh, so he's wow. in there too. Yeah. So there's a couple of fun cameos in there. A couple of fun additions. Of course, John Davison. He he goes back with uh, with Verhoeven all the way back. I think to to RoboCop because he was another one of those Verhoeven or excuse me, another one of those uh, Roger Corman guys who mm. came up with them. So. I don't know that stuff's kind of fun to me, you know. But yeah. Ed uh, Myers is very like easy to spot. Stephen you know what he looks Ford like? is uh plays Lieutenant Willie in the movie, and Who? Stephen Ford is his name. He's the son of Gerald Ford, the president of the United States. Wow. What? Yeah, <laughs> he plays Lieutenant <laughs> Willie. I think he's the first one to die. Like he's like one of the the uh boot camp guys i think or like early yeah. commanders like on the ship when they're first going over then he's uh, one of the first to die like when the bugs show up like when they're on the bug planet and stuff so after uh after a couple of disappointing and of course expensive failures uh verhoven found himself at risk of being an unbankable director you know he'd had a really uh, obviously a terrible uh, reception to show showgirls and then this one wasn't a whole lot better so he decided he might need to tone down the sex and violence in his next film in kind of an attempt to make a more conventional commercial blockbuster uh, and the resulting film would prove to be the last american production of verhoven's career at least so far and it also will serve as the conclusion of our series on paul verhoven that film uh, of course you guys are probably aware Starring Kevin Bacon is Hollow Man. Mm. So that's what we're discussing next week. I have not Love seen some it bacon. In Twenty years, probably. Yeah. So uh, I remember it not being great, but we'll see. We'll see if our what is Paul Verhoeven's out. bacon number? It's one. It's one. <laughs> <laughs> so that's next week. If you want to join us, uh, of course, you can always find these. Most of these films are available to stream online. Head to cinemashock.net where we've got links to where you can find Hollow Man to stream. Uh, you can also find all of our episodes there on cinemashock.net, uh, along with links to our Discord, our, Discord, our, uh, our merch store where you can buy T-shirts and stuff, all kinds of stuff there on cinemashock.net. You can also follow us at cinema underscore shock on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on Facebook. And uh, I think that's all the places where we are. We're not on TikTok or anything I'm excited to talk about Hollow Man because we get to talk about Elizabeth Shue, who I had a childhood crush on. She's in the original Karate Kid. Yeah, uh, she is. She shows mm. back up in Cobra Kai, which if you guys didn't watch Cobra Kai. I haven't watched it yet. She's also in The Boys. That's true. I do oh, like Elizabeth. Yeah. She's in a weird position there, but I would. <laughs> uh, never mind. I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna, <laughs> never mind. I'm not going to go down that path and try to make what, whatever kind of comments I can make there. But uh, I will say that uh, congratulations for being fine, Elizabeth Shue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she really appreciates that. Really uh, but Cobra Kai is good, by the way. Watch I've Cobra heard. Kai if you've never watched Cobra Kai. It is fantastic. I'll watch it one of these days. Uh, you guys want to tell everyone where you can be found on the internet? I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all the socials. And if you like Star Trek, come check out the Computer Resume podcast where we cover the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order. And that is available wherever you find pad, pod, padcasts. 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 Mad, padcasts. <laughs> 
and uh, you can follow that uh, at Computer Resume on all the socials. How about yourself, I, Gary? I am at this is Gary Horde on all the socials. I also have a wrestling show called uh, This is Pro Wrestling. It's at TIPW show. It was formerly called This is the NWA, but now the NWA owns that, and that is on uh, at NWA. So that's easy to find if you want to check out at NWA on YouTube and everything. We do a post show every Tuesday night. You can check that out. And uh, we're doing two pay-per-views coming up. By the time you hear this, that same weekend, uh, this, this weekend, as I'm saying this, uh, or as you hear this, is uh, just say powers. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> August 28th and August 29th. That, that makes so much more sense. In St. Louis, Missouri, Empower, the first ever NWA, all women's pay-per-view is taking place. And on Sunday, August 29th is NWA 73, the 73rd anniversary of the oldest brand in professional wrestling. So yeah. you should check nice. that out if you want to get into some wrestling. And Gary will be there reporting from the ground from the ground, from the from the ground, <laughs> after having been <laughs> body slammed by a large man, uh, maybe Ric Flair, maybe Ric Flair, who Ric is, Flair will be there. He is, who is going to be there? Yeah. So, <laughs> well, I'm Justin underscore Bishop. I am not hanging out with Ric Flair next weekend, but you can find me on Twitter and Instagram or Letterboxd, uh, where you can follow my continued adventures through the Starship Trooper sequels. <laughs> if you so desire uh but until next week may the wings of liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other this is for all you new people i have one rule johnny has the keys johnny rico mm-hmm South American people are. They're very white, but you know, maybe Verhoeven was trying to say something with that. As yeah, white sure as was. as white as Jake Busey's teeth, almost. The brother of Gary, and also the son. <laughs> it's a fucked up family. <laughs> <laughs> uh.